And uh, I, I don't know if we'll be able to get through them all. I Probably not. <clears throat> so if we don't get to your question and you're attached to it and really feel strongly about it, uh, uh, you can approach me tomorrow and we'll discuss it, okay? <laughs> ask it in the morning. Hmm? We can ask it in the morning. In the morning. So the way this works is that Mary is going to uh, pull the question and, and then uh, I'm going to be the answer man. Which takes really, really amazing arrogance to do. <laughs> you should have a bathing suit. <laughs> Interesting. How do you connect with other people's sleeping Buddhas? How do you connect with other people's sleeping Buddhas? Well, of course, I think the most direct response to that is by connecting with your own. Um, The only direction that is required for you to find the sleeping Buddha is to, to look in the direction from which you're coming and to experience that which is the wisdom mind inside you. And when you do that, the amazing thing that happens is that the, the world around you becomes quite transformed and changed, and it becomes quite obvious that we're all uh, Buddhas, not even sleeping, but here and just covered with a little bit of film now and then. So the, the answer to that is uh, what you're doing is how you connect with other people's sleeping Buddhas. Practice and realizing you are that. I mean that seriously, too. What we're doing here in this practice is not altering anything or making anything up out of, out of nowhere. Actually, the practice is, is a practice of uncovering that which already is here. I think Howie mentioned a couple of nights ago, or last night, uh, perhaps both Howie and Mary mentioned that uh, it, it, the enlightenment has already happened. It's a matter of discovering. Tell, uh, tell us about yourselves. <laughs> Why and when did you begin to practice? To what do you attribute the most significant changes in your practice? And what were those changes? <laughs> And where are you now? <laughs> Whoa! <laughs> Should have screened that one out. Huh? <laughs> that's challenging. Oh, that's the night's program. Yeah, it's the whole thing. 
Uh, how about briefly, though, each of us, uh, when did you begin to practice? And what was the most significant change that's happened? How about that? Up until, yeah. I began practicing formally in 1969. Um, it's been the the center pretty much the center of my life ever since then, practice. I'm, I'm, uh, I love the Dharma, unquestioningly. And the, I, the most significant changes, I think, have been um, a gradual um, lightening in my mind so that I'm not quite as curmudgeonly as I used to be. The traces are all still present, but, you know, (laughs) one doesn't alter everything. Um, This is always a tricky question for me to answer because I don't really know when I started to practice. I started to do Buddhist practice in 1984, But I started my own spiritual search when I was very, very young, when I raised myself secretly Catholic. (laughs) Because I wanted something, and I knew that there was something more than what my family was telling me. And so Buddhism unpacked itself for me in my search for finding a way to do contemplative practice. And I happened to stumble on first meditation at Green Gulch, oh, not at Green Gulch, at Tassajara, when I went there during their guest season, and then about a year later when I met Jack. And um, I knew that, um, particularly at the workshop with Jack, that I had found a way to practice that would really work for me, so that's pretty much where I've been settled for the last, whatever it's been, 16 years, I guess, 17, 17 since Tassajara. What's that other question? <laughs> what, what has been the major change, really? Oh, I, I, it's a little hard to say, but I think it's very similar to what Robert said, that, that there's a way that I think um, the, my heart has opened and softened. Um, I used to describe myself, well, actually, I began to have some insight, and then I described myself as the judgment queen of the Western world. Um, but somebody once pointed out to me that that in itself is pretty judgmental because maybe somebody else thinks they're the judgment point. <laughs> <clears throat> but nonetheless, it was a, a tricky spot for me. And a lot of that has softened and opened, um, although my family will be happy to tell you about all my as-yet-unredeemed places. So, And as to where I am now, I have no idea. In process... Well, hearing Mary speak about raising herself as a closet Catholic, (laughs) um, my um, first spiritual practice was so different. It it was um, my first real spiritual training was playing golf. (laughs) 
<laughs> this is true. Yes. I used to play golf. Um, I was very attracted to it. I played it to such an extent that I would come home after hitting thousands of golf balls a day completely stoned out of my mind, not knowing why I was felt like I was living on some other plane of existence, and it was because of the concentration. And I'd literally have to soak my hands the next morning so they would open. So I was very passionate about this because it awakened something in me. Uh, so that's my first spiritual practice. I started formal meditation practice in 1971 uh, as a, a freshman in college. And, uh, and it was really just so that I could uh, hang out with uh, my girlfriend who was who was, um, whose brother was a transcendental meditation teacher. And as I often tell people, the relationship didn't last, but the meditation did. Uh, but uh, from the moment I started practicing meditation, it was like um, coming home and uh, didn't really start doing insight meditation practice till 1977. And that um, I had, I saw how crazy my mind was, and that's really I knew I was onto something that would be valuable. Uh, the biggest change is, uh, it's really hard to put that in a short sentence, but I, I think a few different things. One is I, I don't take myself quite as seriously as I used to, and maybe that's similar to yeah. I used to be very, uh, very serious, very critical, uh, self-critical, and. Uh, so less serious, and I think most importantly, and this may sound kind of arrogant, is I, I'm not searching anymore. I really feel like a finder instead of a searcher, and that I don't really have to, I don't have to, um, I don't feel like I have to get somewhere. And I, I always felt a little bit like I was toppling forward. Um, and so I really, I feel more at home Good. And so they're kind of inexhaustible, that feeling. Actually, I want to add a P.S. <laughs> I really wanted to add a P.S. to the, the bit about um, what's changed, because I think also what's changed is I really think at this point I know that I don't know anything, and that it's not even possible in a very real way to know anything. And that's hugely freeing. It's called divine ignorance. Yeah. <laughs> it's great. I highly recommend it. Mm-hmm. You ready for another question? I, I want the mic. I'm ready. <laughs> Sorry. Turn it off. Yeah. I have heard of, perhaps am in, at times in touch with, the heart of sadness, quote unquote, or similar phrase. How does this square with the joyous rewards of the path? Interesting, huh? In touch with the heart of sadness. The joyous rewards of the path are beyond sadness or cheerfulness. The, The joyous reward is prior to any kind of emotional response or reactivity. It's something that is revealed in the very vastness of the ground from which we emerge. And uh, it has nothing to do with being sad or cheerful or grumpy. 
that joyousness pervades all of it. And uh, one becomes quite conscious of it. Even in the midst of whatever the circumstances are, the practice really brings that. It brings a, uh, Howard was talking about it last night, it brings a sense of well-being that's uh, unassailable. Do you all agree with that? I knew it was going to be like this. No, this is going to be very short. <laughs> Whatever sense that I've had of the, of the what it was at the heart of sadness, yes. somehow touching the heart of sadness is joyful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's all. Exactly. Long one. <laughs> They're interesting though, aren't they? It's only one page. This question is about relationship. If the primary relationship is with the beloved or searching for the beloved, then what is a love relationship with another person for? (laughs) It's confusing to me because on one hand it is very distracting and on the other hand it may be a way or path to work through things. Parentheses. Please don't say it's for companionship. For me, that leads directly to Lika Sukha. What kind of Sukha? Lokia Sukha. All right. Nothing wrong with a little Lokia Sukha. No, it's much more than companionship. Um, the, the Dalai Lama. Uh, has said a number of times recently that his religion is kindness and that the purpose of life is happiness, to have happiness. I think those are incredible statements of of, uh, simplicity and truth. Finding happiness... uh, has a lot to do with finding love, the, 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 the natural state of love that lives in the clear mind and heart. And uh, relationship with another person is a way of, of developing and discovering that love which transcends the, inter, the interpersonal. And uh, I think a relationship with another person is a very direct way of doing that and is a spiritual path. So the purpose of loving another is to love everything. Just on top of that, the purpose of a relationship is also to reveal where where you are not in touch with the Absolutely. beloved. Absolutely, and that's what a, the function of a lot of a function of a relationship is to reflect back to you where where you're blind. It'll put you on your knees quicker than anything. Just trying to think whether I whether we need the woman's point of view here. Yeah. <laughs> 
you know, loving, learning to love the people in my life has been um, the, the, that and meditation practice the central core of my spiritual life. Yeah, I think, I, I mean, I would echo what both um, Howie and Robert said that there's actually, there's no way that you can have a relationship with anything but the beloved. And certainly my relationship with my husband um, and my relationships with my daughters and other people um, are the the furnace (laughs) in which that takes place. And there is some of that worldly happiness in there. And I... I don't, as, you know, I think as long as we understand that that's what it is, that um, there's goodness in the space and time relationship, there's good laughter and good sex and, and good food and music and all of those things which are of the nature to arise and the nature to pass away. Um, and I don't think that's any problem as long as we hold that to be true and we understand it to be true. And it's actually a very profound thing to have um, what is, in my case, actually a very happy relationship with another being. And to look at him and to know that I could walk out the door, you know, I might, I could, I'm sitting here at Spirit Rock, he's down there in Santa Cruz, I might never see him again. And that's really true. And it's such a teaching to hold that. So I think, in a way, our relationships are, not only are they the beloved, they are our teachers, and um, it's a wonderful, wonderful ground for practice. And I want to add a P.S. because it comes up a lot. I'm partnered with a person who doesn't share this practice with me. And a lot of people say, oh, well then, you know, you have to have someone who shares the practice with you. And I just want to tell you, you don't have to have someone who shares the practice with you. As long as they're not actively working against it, there's a lot that can still be done. And it can still be just as much and just as profoundly a spiritual practice. So I say that because I suspect I'm not the only person here in the room who's partnered with someone who doesn't do Vipassana. And I want you to know that you're not alone. So now you want the question. Sometimes it seems as though these practices support my aversions and lead to a more controlled and rigid way of life. Could you speak to this? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, the, the self-contraction, the egoic self, will use anything to <laughs> triumph. <laughs> It has no pride whatsoever. And it will use all your spiritual practices also. Chogun Trungpa used to call that spiritual materialism. Spiritual materialism. And so one can um, express the aversive mind and, and negativities in the practice by becoming too rigid, too serious, forcing it, uh, uh, looking for achievement and progress all the time rather than having the practice um, 
be constantly opening into newness and freshness in life. It, it can become m- more like an athletic endeavor. That's true. And, and then it can become very narrow. And uh, one reason it's good to have a teacher is to monitor that possibility. And uh, if it arises, to comment on it. So, um, if your practice seems to be making you a more controlled and tight person, then perhaps it would be time to talk with a teacher about it. As Robert was talking, I was remembering a story. I knew you'd have a good time. (laughs) I am having a good time. Um, It's a story about Suzuki Roshi, and um, who was the founder of Zen Center in San Francisco and Tashahara in Green Gulch. And on his way home once from Tashahara, a student was driving him, and they stopped to have a bite to eat. And the student, being a very good Zen student, and very mindful of the fact that he was with his teacher, ordered himself a nice, juicy, vegetarian garden burger. And Suzuki Roshi ordered himself a nice, juicy hamburger. And the student was a little startled, but you know, figured maybe the teacher had some special dispensation or something of that sort. And so after a while, the waitress arrived, or the waiter or whatever, with the food, and put the plates down, you know, the hamburger in front of Suzuki Roshi and the little veggie burger in front of um, the student. And then with a big grin, Suzuki Roshi reached over and took the vegetarian burger and handed the hamburger to his student. (laughs) So, so much for virtuous rigidity. Just have one little thing. (laughs) Just a... um, a line from Alan Watts where he says, uh, meditation can be fun. It's not something you do as a grim duty because it's good for you, as a kind of self-punishment. He said, instead, the idea is to dig the present moment, to groove with the eternal now, (laughs) and to bring yourself into a place where you see where it's at is simply here and now. What's that bumper sticker? Meditation is not what you think. I like these questions. Oh, tell me, where is the rock, the spirit rock, that is? So should I never attain its spirit, I can at least claim to have touched the rock. <laughs> That's, easy. That's easy. I think you're referring to the, the earthly rock that lives uh, on the right side of the road yeah, just, uh, before you come to the driveway. Before you come to the exit, you'll look over on the right in the field. There's a large rock with the trees growing out of it, actually. As you're driving down Sir Francis Drake. This way, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, do you have any comments about that? <laughs> <laughs> At least you could have pointed in the right direction. <laughs> This is surrender. (laughs) Between our 11 a.m. sit and movement work, 
I found myself encountering anger, disgust, and GI upset, and lots of agitated restlessness. Also, shame <laughs> and some grief. Is this likely related to the Mideast loving kindness practice? Ah. I used my heart alone, not Buddha's. Namaste. What's yours? Mm. Tung Lin. Yeah, um, for some of you, it may not have been in the hall, but there was a kind of an international hour of practice um, today between 11 and 12 for prayer and meditation for healing and peace in the Mideast. And so we took a little time while we were sitting to do um, some practice. And I suggested working a bit, because it's such a simple practice, with the practice of Tonglen, which is breathing in um, whatever it is that's difficult. And you can imagine it as a dark or yucky kind of cloud or in any way that works for you. And then you breathe it into the heart and then breathe out compassion and again visualizing it in any way that works for you and I had suggested um, as I always do that um, sometimes one's own heart isn't big enough and certainly for all of the distress in the Middle East it would be pretty hard to have a personal heart that was big enough to take all of that in and that we could borrow the heart of the Buddha Um, who knows I mean it's pretty impossible to tell whether that is the only thing that figures into this person's distress. Um, But that it would be part of it makes perfect sense to me. And it could be the trigger for um, a fairly significant shift. Not knowing the questioner, I mean, it's possible that this person has more personal um, connection to the Middle East. Who knows? So... um, I think the useful way sometimes to hold these significant times when all of a sudden the heart kind of goes sour and the belly goes sour and the gut goes south and, um, and, it's, and we're restless and itchy and sad and angry all at once is to understand that in a way it doesn't matter exactly what conditioned it you probably can't figure out exactly what conditioned it. I mean, the Buddha tells us that the karma of any particular moment is way too complicated to actually figure out. But that it's here, and that um, you have something to learn from it as you work with it and try to sort out what's going on with the body-mind-heart event. That's the interesting place, I think. Yeah, you have uh, to work with it anyway. Yeah, I mean, um, regardless. And um, you only you know, you know, is, does this figure into it or does that figure into it? I mean, if anybody knows, only you know. Um, so, is this, do you want? I never know what he wants. Question. Question, okay. He doesn't want me to keep going. Is what he wants. <laughs> okay. <laughs> what about the bubbles come? Uh, what about the bubbles come? They are only an idea already fully formed, 
Then I either go about explaining them in thought words to myself, or I let them go if I catch myself in time. I'm, I'm assuming that the reference to bubbles is the way I described thoughts as being like bubbles. And uh, yes, it's true. They are simply uh, concepts, thoughts, um, Joseph, our friend Joseph used to say, you can't experience a thought, but you can experience sensations. And so the, the way to work with them is to uh, recognize them for ephemeral and impermanent phenomena like bubbles that have very little bit, very little substance and they move through your mind and your awareness and they appear and they disappear just as quickly as they appeared and then it's over with. And um, you can chase them and make stories of them, or you can uh, be aversive and push them away, or you can simply see them for what they are, which is uh, whatever a thought is. Once I asked my, my first spiritual teacher, thinking I was going to ask a really intelligent question, I asked him whether I... He, he uh, would tell me if thoughts have substance. And uh, he looked at me a long time and he said, don't bother with questions like that. <laughs> so there. <laughs> they don't. They're simply phenomena that go through your mind and, and you can't experience a thought. So if you're looking for reality, look more to your, what it is that you know that you experience. Please talk, and this is, this is related, please talk more about a practice that deals with anger. Thank you. Good. There was a time in my life that I was experiencing a lot more anger than comes up now and learned a great deal about working with it. What I had to realize, first of all, that anger is not anything to be ashamed of or to be judgmental about. It's pretty much a universal human experience to have anger arise at some time or another. It's pretty impossible to live without that happening. Anger is a, an energy that arises in the mind, a very powerful one. It's quite often associated with some kind of a sense of outrage or being victimized or being hurt and not seen or not appreciated in some way. So it has extra uh, egoic charge. Uh, very technically, anger arising in the mind is the play of the fire element in our being. So that you could think of anger as being heat in the system. Um, the way, first of all, to, the way to work with it is to watch for judgments about it and your reactions to being or having anger. And then see quite quickly that it's a bodily experience. 
uh, and uh, just like all emotions, it manifests not only as thought or, or color in the mind, but also as very strong sensations in the body. And uh, the thing to do is to find out by observing with close, bare attention what kinds of sensations in your body you're calling anger. You see? What is the actual thing you're experiencing? How does it manifest? How does it move in the body energetically? Because anger is a concept also, quite different from the actual experience of it. So work with, with it at the level of sensations, so that as soon as you can recognize what you call anger, this is anger, this is anger, immediately get interested in, in what is it actually in the body and uh, see if you can stay interested there rather than going off into justifying it or you know, commenting on it or all the stuff that we do with it. Very, uh, the other thing is that anger will frequently be accompanied by fear because of, it's so powerful and uh, you may have to be working with fear and anger at the same time and you work with fear in the same way it's also a bodily experience. Okay? Mm -hmm. uh, in terms of working with anger, one of the biggest stick, sticky points is the very strong tendency to be identified with it, that sense of, it's my anger, I'm angry. And part of the value of doing what Robert's su suggesting, of attending to the changing sensations and the, the living current of it, is that it becomes obvious that, um, that anger or the sensations of anger is angry. It's a process that's happening all by itself. And it has the, what the Buddha called the element of not-self. It's not, it doesn't belong, it's not anyone's. It's not ownable, it's not controllable. Yeah. But it's not something to believe, but to actually to, dis to discover for yourself. And that's part of the liberating insight of working directly with anger, is that it frees you from that strong identification. One last little thing. Uh, that you can use for reflection on working with anger is the Buddha said that we get angry for two primary reasons. One is wounded pride and the other one is frustrated desire. And both frustrated desire and wounded pride are usually, you know, ego stuff coagulated around a view of self. So just to ask that question, where is, where is my pride wounded? My view of myself wounded? And is there some frustrated desire here? How am I not being loved the way I want to be? Saturday before lunch, Robert mentioned there were three realities of life. And he mentioned one. What are the other two? I was talking about the, the three uh, characteristics of uh, uh, the, this world being uh, anicca, dukkha, and anatta meaning the, what characterizes this world is that uh, it's a world of constant change and um, uh, a world in which there is suffering for everyone and uh, a world in which there is no solid, fixed self, solitary self. And um, that's what I was referring to. Is this different from what is taught by Choldog Toku Rinpoche, uh, 
which are, number one, the preciousness of human life, two, impermanence, that's one of them, three, laws of cause and effect, and four, oceans of suffering. Similar, but not quite the same. Uh, What is this thing called fear? And what is its job? That's a whole Dharma talk. Yeah, I have. Mm -hmm. Quite briefly, that that talk in a nutshell is, is, and this is coming from my psychological perspective, you know, being a psychiatrist and a studier of the human mind and emotions in that way. Um, I think fear arises uh, when we begin to be conscious of a separate self early in childhood. That when there is that division in consciousness, that split between self and other that develops, automatically there comes fear because the self person, the the small self person, becomes separate, becomes separated from the mother or from from union with wholeness. And at that time, there is the emerging of the other, and the other can be unpredictable and potentially dangerous. And fear is this uh, awareness of not being connected. And also you could think of it as the absence of being connected in love. So some people speak of fear as being the absence of love. I think it's more realization that one is separate and alone and in need of solace or contact. One of my teachers, Chogyam Trungpa, used to describe uh, the arising of fear happening when the ego suddenly looks around and realizes it's falling through empty space and recoils in horror because there is no security. There is nothing to hang on to, quite literally. And since it's simply a point of view and not a really fixed event, Uh, The ego has no basis, in fact, for its existence. So it lives in fear all the time. I think fear is the reaction to the separation. One of the things that's been most helpful for me with fear is actually quite similar to what Howie just said about anger, which is also to remember that fear is a mind state. And it doesn't have any... It, it is sometimes a fairly helpful mind state, like get out of the middle of the road because the car's coming and the organism has some fear. Um, but sometimes it's just a mind state. And to remember that, that it's this wave going through, um, can be very helpful in sort of riding the wave while it's there. Um, and, and just sometimes waiting for it to pass. Its job is to remind you that you need to return home. Yeah, and sometimes you do. Just uh, because you mentioned Chogyam Trungpa, uh, 
he talked about the antidote for fear or the beginning of fearlessness is to is touching the tenderness in the heart and feeling one's vulnerability and that that's the it's often awkward at the beginning it it feels you feel kind of raw and he describes it as being like uh like a reindeer that first when it first gets its horns that are very lumpy and bloody and uh and it feels weird but then the reindeer realizes that it should have horns just as a human being realizes that it it should have he or she should have a tender heart yeah. you know? and that's the birth of uh fearlessness he he talked of it uh as touching the broken heart the heart that's been cut open <laughs> Does practice make perfect? (laughs) (laughs) Not yet. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. This is how we are. Yeah. (laughs) Personal to you. question is, could you say something about working with intention, how to locate it? Well, some would say that, uh, that everything hangs on the, well, as Joseph Goldstein says, everything hangs on the tip of motivation, that, uh, that the effect of, of any thought or word or action uh, the karmic repercussion, the reverberation, completely depends on the intention behind it, what the aim is. And so intention in the general sense is what, for example, for example to, if you open your mouth and speak to somebody, there's an, there's an intention, and it's helpful to consider that, because if it's to harm, you'll have a certain repercussion. If it's to, to uh, bless someone or to have goodwill, it has a different repercussion. So it's very important to attend to what um, what is the motivation or intention, and I see them similarly in that way. But intention in the most, um, where, where I found it very interesting in intensive meditation practice was the, uh, the intention as that impulse before something happens, that there is an animating or mental impulse before every movement you make, before you reach for something, before you eat, before you before you do almost anything. Mm. And that impulse arises of itself, again, just like the anger, and then the physical movement follows. And insight into that movement of what's called nama rupa, that mental impulse and then the physical response, is one of the first areas that really frees us from the tendency to take it all personally, to see it everything that happens as self. Because when you, when you break down the sense of, of me doing something... If you broke it down to its really its little minute details, you'd see that there's simply intentions or impulses and action, impulses and action, impulses and action, and that there's no one behind it, and that this is the way life is. It's this, it's this inter, this interaction. So that's something that it takes, it takes the heart being very quiet to see, and the beauty of discovering intention or that impulse on retreat is it gives you that little space to begin to at least have the sense that you can choose whether you want to take that extra bite or whether you want to take that, go down and have some tea, that moment when you're about to. And it can really free you from just being led around like a puppy on a leash. 
And then that leads to wider, wider implications of your motivation for, for doing all sorts of things. So intention is a totally, I call it a cool area to investigate. It's the beginning of all karma. Yes. <clears throat> Another long one, but a very good one. What suggestions do you have for setting up a meditation practice at home in the midst of a hectic life? I.e., shorter sitting periods, more often versus longer periods, less frequently? Is there a minimum time to shoot for per week for the practice to be effective? A certain place in the house to sit? I'm asking for concrete details. Thank you. <laughs> All right. <laughs> I'll give you uh, my idea on concrete details. Have a place in the house or wherever you live that you set aside for your work, your spiritual work. Have an altar or a corner that's there's a plant or something that you cherish there. Make your nest. Have that there. Uh, I'm going to get really dogmatic about this. Have a, peri- a, a, a time in the day when that's what you do. Preferably before you do anything else. As soon as you wake up. Make it inviolable. That time is for meditation, and that's what you do then. If you're really serious about developing a regular practice. Um, it doesn't matter, I think, how long. What matters is the, 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 uh, the doing of it the being there for as much time as you can. Um, If you need to, set an alarm and set it for 10 minutes and just start with 10 minutes. But uh, make it longer and longer as you are able to do so. Um, Don't miss it. Don't miss, in the beginning, don't miss a day. Keep going. But at the same time, uh, you have to be like... um, uh, forgiving about this because there'll be times when you'll have you'll just not be able to so you know it, it set the intention anyway and what else um, associate it with a sangha go to meetings um, uh, belong to a group of people who are also practicing you will need the support it's almost impossible to do it alone. It can be done, but you really need other people to do this. And um, ask a lot that you be allowed to have a, a regular practice. Ask inside that that be given to you. Because, uh, you know, the, the truth is that most people who leave a retreat uh, don't continue with the practice. That's pretty much so. Not regularly. Um, so that's my ideas. Those are my ideas on it. You, you have to make a firm commitment to it. And that comes out of the realization in a setting like this of the value of it, of a practice. And um, teachers are helpful in that way uh, to remind you that there really isn't anything more important in your life. Not really. So now we get the softer side. (laughs) I'm German. (laughs) 
what Robert says is really wonderful and is really true and is also really hard to do. And some of you will go home and almost immediately you'll miss a few days. And it could feel pretty discouraging, particularly after being here. One of the most important instructions that you've heard the entire time you've, you've been here is the instruction that every time the mind wanders off, when you wake up and you realize that you've gone away, come back. And that's true in a sitting and it's true in life. So that as you work with setting up a daily practice, which is really the best way to do it, is to have a place, to have a time, at least a regular time in your day, if not exactly, if it's not... For, for me, there's a time in my routine that I sit. It's not always exactly the same time of day. Um, that brings a, a lot of steadiness to the practice. But it took me quite a while to find that place. And some of you may need to experiment with what's exactly the right place in your day to do it. If suddenly you realize it's been three weeks, or two years, or even twelve, and you haven't sat, and now you're waked up, please come back. That's what's really important. The other thing I want to underline is what Robert said about it not necessarily mattering too much about how much time. It's helpful as time goes on to develop some kind of chunk that you sit, whether it's at you know, 25 minutes or half an hour or 45 minutes or an hour. There's nothing magic about 45 minutes. It's just sometimes people ask that, you know, why do you sit for 45 minutes? I think they're expecting us to say that some cloud of devas descended on us sometime and said this is the time to sit. It's not. It's just what's convenient. We used to sit an hour. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we still do in some retreats. Um, I'm an, a real advocate of what I call the three-breath sit, which is sometimes like on a day when you're going to travel, which is something I do a lot, or something else is, is happening and you can't take the time to put your body in the position and to breathe three times or ten times because the body knows there's something quite wonderful about putting your body in whatever position you use for practice and touching that place. I heard Sokyal Rinpoche once describe it. He said it's a bit... Like, you know, sometimes when you have a special tea that your acupuncturist prescribed for you and you carry around a thermos of it. And, you know, mostly when it's time for a cup of the tea, you pour a nice big cup and you drink it. But sometimes you can just pour that much and, you know, drink it down, two swallows or whatever. And it reminds you that the rest of the tea is in the thermos. And the same thing is true for practice. So while being ferocious and passionate about your practice, which you, it's really wonderful, also um, be very kind to yourself when it doesn't go so well, and then begin again. Well, everybody's helpful. Hence. 30 seconds here. Uh, this may not be practical, but it speaks really of the creative part of, of practice. Uh, and one of the problems that people have in keeping a daily practice is that they at least what I noticed in myself in my early years and, and many other people, is that um, 
they burdened, or I burdened my sitting practice with the demand that it had to fulfill all my spiritual needs. And then, every, and then the whole rest of the day somehow didn't count. And when I really started to see that I carry this, as I mentioned earlier in question or talk, that I really am always present. You know, all of us is always present. We may imagine that we're somewhere else, but we're, there's always an opportunity to practice wherever we are. And Mary alluded to this. And each of us can be creative in ways of, of intensifying our uh, mindfulness in activities, in our speech, in our, the way one of my teachers used to say, watch what you do with your hands. And I found that I started being a lot more mindful when I, you know, pick, doing the picking and the scratching. And, the, and it brought me, into, brought me to attention a lot more. So I would say intensify everything else. Put less pressure on your sitting, but sit every day. I think we should take one more question. It's 20 after. Okay. Uh, <laughs> well, it isn't really a question. I think we'll let it go. It's not. It's. It has to do with tomorrow, big sky mind and reentry, and I think we'll we'll deal with all of that tomorrow. I used to be a very controlled eater, even close to anorexia. The instructions for mindful eating remind me of the eat slow, eat less, rigid, controlled way I used to eat. Can you help me to differentiate? Yes. I think um, the um, purposes are entirely different. In, In getting the instructions for eating meditation, the idea is to develop more and more the capacity for mindfulness. Uh, in daily life, no matter what you're doing. So we're using eating as something that we all do as a way of, of uh, pointing out that the mindfulness can be practiced at any time. And there is no goal about, uh, that has anything to do with the effects of the eating other than the awareness of the moment. And I think the, the kind of eating that you're speaking of here, eat slow and eat less in a rigid and controlled way, had more to do with the body image and uh, weight and uh, appearance and uh, maybe how you felt, but uh, it wasn't oriented toward awareness and mindfulness. The best instructions I ever heard for eating practice were from Ed Brown, who says enjoy your food Hmm. so I think we have pretty much run out of our time we're going to take this on the road and we'll be broadcasting on PBS next week (laughs) (laughs) Um, we have uh, a walking period now until 9 o'clock so that's going to be about 30 minutes or so of walking meditation. If uh, your question didn't get responded to and, and uh, you really would like to discuss it, I'll stay here for a while if you want to talk about it. Okay? We'll come back at 9 for another sit. Thanks very much.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.